This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. And welcome to Security and Security, hosted by Johnny Seifert. This is the Celebrity Mental Health Podcast, where I say it's okay to not be okay. And if you have the same mantra as me, then before we get to today's guest, please subscribe to Security and Security after listening. And at the end of the episode, leave a five-star rating and a review. Now, let me tell you about my guest today. My guest today started in the comedy circuit at St Andrews University where she was studying experimental pathology and has gone on to become a firm favourite amongst shows including Live at the Apollo and Mot the Week. Known as the ukulele playing music comedian, I'm delighted to welcome Tusa Niska as she heads around the UK on her reawakening tour. It's Ria Lena. Hello Ria. Hi, thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you. I'm such a fan of yours. I'm so glad I finally got you on here because your Live at the Apollo show was just absolutely brilliant. It's about a year ago. That Live at the Apollo was probably one of the most stressful times because I was filming all summer um, this Amazon show that I was hosting. And then I came back from the summer holiday and they went, hey, do you want to do Live at the Apollo? And I went, yeah, of course I do. And they went, great. You've got 10 days to get match fit. And I went, ah. And we filmed 10 days later. You film 20 minutes and then they cut it down. So I had mm-hmm. I had two minutes a day to sort myself out and come up with something that I, you know, I'd be proud to have aired literally around the world. Is that hard for you then to have a 20 minute set and then condense down to 12 minutes? But you know the narrative and the storyline that you want to tell. And yet you've got an editor who's coming who doesn't know your way of thinking to go, well, actually, hold on, you've needed that joke because that length of a last joke. I hear you. And that can be an issue. But Life at the Apollo, the editors, all they do is edit stand-up. And they've been editing that show for something like 14, 15 series, where, wherever we're at. So they are really, really good at taking what you give them and condensing it down into something that still makes sense. I don't think, I've, I, th- I think... In all the years, there might have been one or two sets where I've watched it and gone, oh, they've chopped that up wrong. I know that act. And that's not quite how that goes. But other than that, I think they're really, really good at it. For television, it's always better to get more in the can and cut it down than rely on only what happened in the room. I mean, for example, if somebody swears too much, they can't use it all or... 
you know, if, if something goes wrong or, you know, if, if the audience don't react the way that they hope to, or maybe something, I mean, in my set, actually, something happened that nobody could foresee. I think I got heckled in the middle of, of the set. Someone just in the middle of the, of, apropos of nothing, just went, I love you from the back of the room. That ended up on television, but that wasn't planned. So you never know. So I think it's, it's always wise to, to do extra to get to let them cut down to the absolute gold because it's also the best way to make sure that you look your best they'll go right perform for 20 minutes and those top 10 minutes we're going to edit it together and make you look amazing and do you workshop that although you only had 10 days to sort that out did you workshop those Mm -hmm. to work out which jokes actually do land and which don't there's regulations as to what you can and can't do in terms of uh, topic matter in terms of language that you can use and so i was very grateful that this comedy circuit came together and just went, you need stage time? No problem. And here, there, and everywhere, I cobbled together uh, probably five five gigs here and there to be able to just practice everything so that I was ready. What I love about the comedy circuit, and I know a couple of comedians, I know people, three people as well, is that those bigger comedians work with the little comedians and help them with their sets because no one is rivaling each other. You're all in this together. And I think that's so nice. And I think I think that there's something mm. really nice about that sense of belonging in the circuit. What's your experience has been like? That is something that I always liked about comedy is that in, in one regard, we aren't competing with each other. When you do a show, you have your MC, your beginning act, your middle act, your closing act, and you all have a role to play. And in that way, you don't conflict. It's, you know, it's not like, oh, because I'm here, you can't be here the four of you come together or five of you come together and do a show. And that means that because everybody on the bill is at different levels in their career, you do, you end up in car shares where you might be in a car share for two hours with a fantastic headliner. And, and it's a huge advantage for newer acts to say, yes, I do drive because then they get the opportunity to spend that extra time with bigger acts on the journey, just talking and learning. So, I mean, there's been some wonderful, there are times where you have so much fun in this car. You don't actually really want to get out and do the gig. You just want to turn around and go back again <laughs> so you can spend more time in the car. I think that's really nice. And then it obviously shows when you all do these same TV shows and you're on the same circuits as well for TV. So whether it's Mot the Week or 8 Out of 10 Cats Does Countdown, you've got that national report to bounce off each other, which you can't manufacture and you can't just come up overnight and go, oh, look, we're on TV now, let's be best friends. You've nurtured that over a long time and you've been all through the Edinburgh Fringe Festival together. You've gone through those different TV shows together. So you all kind of get it. I don't think your average TV watcher realises that that it isn't just us sitting down off the cuff and, and bish-bash-boshing off each other. So you're right that when there is chemistry, it really, really works. Um, but likewise, the, the flip can happen. There are times where you get booked for a show and you're doing it with someone you've never met before just it's a big circuit now and there are times you go oh my goodness I've heard so much about you but I've never actually met you so let's try and pretend that we're best friends and see how that goes and and sometimes I mean I did World's Most Dangerous Roads with Darren Harriet and even though he and I are great friends we'd never actually gigged together before we did the show we knew each other we knew of each other we got along great like a house on fire had never actually gigged together. So it can work both ways. How does that then change with the rise of TikTok? So obviously you you had the comedy career, then obviously COVID happened, and then all the tours stopped, all the TV shows stopped. And then suddenly out of COVID, you had all these people who suddenly became comedians, impersonators, they grew their followings on TikTok. So suddenly they've all got millions and millions of followers because they're doing all these pastiches and parodies. And then suddenly they're now becoming mainstream and getting booked for the circuit as well. So how's that changed for you? No, I, I don't think so. I think what you're 
finding is that those that want to go into stand-up and have a career in the art form of stand-up are coming in at the bottom like everybody else because they don't have the experience. Stand-up is its own unique art form. You cannot practice it in any other way other than getting on stage in front of an audience. I can sit and write at my computer all day. I will not know what works till I get on stage and perform it. So if those um, online comedians wish to come into the art form of stand-up, they will have to start at the bottom and work their way up. The advantage that they have is because they have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of followers, is that they can create their own stage spaces in which to practice. And so they can progress perhaps faster than those of us that just were on the circuit using whichever audiences happened to be at the gig at the time. Um, and so I think that's the difference. If they are moving straight from online work to stage, uh, for example, perhaps they're going to tour a live show. Again, they're not really on the circuit. They're booking out a venue. They're selling tickets off the back of their own following and they're, you know, and they're doing their shows. So it, it's not that they've come suddenly flooded our, flooded our circuit place because it's a very specific skill that you can't just, you can't shortcut to the top of in any other way. And actually, you make a very good point as well, is that they they self-edit themselves very differently. So whilst they might do a clip over and over and over again, and then that's the clip that goes out on TikTok, and if they're putting three clips together, that might have been 20 clips condensed down to three. When you're on stage, it's as of live. You've got to be able to perform it and land that joke the first time, and that does take a lot of practice. So let's talk about that practice and how that affected you. Let's go back to the beginning of the life of Ria. Talk to me about your upbringing, because you've got parents who are one from the Philippines and one from Germany, which are two completely different cultures. So how did that affect your upbringing? People think that they're very different, but in fact, an Asian woman and a German man are very, very similar in terms of their expectations, in terms of their work ethic, in terms of you know their lack of expression when it comes to emotions so it wasn't actually at they weren't as chalk and cheese or opposites as people think they are my mother was actually a physicist and a computer programmer before she retired so she again was if anything almost the more dictatorial Germanic of the two. My father is a big old teddy bear and he loves to cook. And he he's the one you run to when you want an extra sweet or something like that. So my parents had a very unusual dynamic. Filipinos are a matriarchal society. So my mother ran everything in the house and she raised me and my sister to be very strong in that regard. Uh, and the expectation was you go to university, you get a proper degree, you get a proper job, you buy a house, if you want a partner, you can have a partner. You don't have to have a partner. Who needs a partner? Ugh, man, that was that was my mother. And then, uh, <laughs> and then I turned around and threw that all on its head and went, "Okay, well, I've got my degrees, but actually, I'm going to go into the arts." And she went, "I," she's like, "I don't know how to compute that. I have no idea how to compute that." And my sister behind me, upon whom there were far fewer expectations, she came up and just went, "All right, I'll get the job." I'll do the proper thing. I'll get the degree and the proper job and everything else. So I'm the real black sheep of the family by going into the arts because all the rest of my family were just, no, no, you you work, you have a pension, you buy a house. And I've gone, woohoo, let's just live in our overdrafts and see what happens, woohoo. So that was at university though, where you started coming out of your show after you'd done the academia. How introverted versus extroverted were you at school though, where you weren't showing off? You know, it took you to university about showing off size. I was performing from a young age. I was, you know, I was in all the high school musicals and everything. Um, there was no, there was no flip. It's not like a switch flipped. I was, in fact, 
when I was about eight or nine years old, one of my friend's mothers offered to foster me. She said, this girl clearly wants to perform. Why don't I take her and I can, you know, be her stage mom. And my mother was like, thank you. But I think we'll keep, we'll keep our daughter. Thank you very much. So no, it was always, I think it was always in the cards that I had some kind of performer streak to me. It just wasn't an option. Performance wasn't really considered a real live option, unless you were rich upper middle class, like your Benedict Cumberbatches who, you know, could waltz into whatever they wanted to waltz into having no fees to pay uh, and can afford any, any fees that there might be. Um, I, you know, I had to, I had to very much make a choice about how was I going to have something to fall back on to make sure that I could make a living, that kind of thing. And comedy specifically wasn't a career choice until maybe 10 years. It wasn't realistic for people to, to leave university and go, and I shall make money and pay for a family with stand-up comedy. Um, it was something that you fell into if life didn't work for you. And as an undiagnosed autistic, we did not know uh, until I was an adult, we had no idea that I was, but I fell into stand-up and went, oh, this fits. And, and what I found in stand-up was a world full of other, not social outcasts, but just people for whom the norm didn't quite work or, you know, they were, you know, they would say something that would get them in trouble at work, but you say it on stage and it gets you laughs. And that's what I found. I found it's sort of like, I don't want to say freak show, but it, it was it very mildly felt like that. I felt very at home with all of these individuals that, that didn't quite vibe with life. They didn't quite resonate at the same frequency as everyone else, but together there we were getting up on stage and all of the people that looked down at us every other day of the week were sitting there in the audience looking up at us and adoring everything that we had to say, hanging off our every word. I never quite fit in at school and I never quite fit in socially with groups of girls as was expected. And then I started doing stand-up and I was very I was very comfortable there. It was a male environment. I was always more comfortable in heavily male environments because I was quite outspoken and I didn't have all of the the social niceties that young women, nice ladies were supposed to have. And men didn't seem to care as much. They didn't find the, my bluntness offensive or, or disturbing. You know, they wouldn't whisper about me in front of me, anything like that. They were just very straightforward and they accepted my straightforwardness. So I think it just, it was something that, it was a world that didn't intimidate me. I think that it did intimidate a lot of, the reason that, that there aren't more women at my level now is because when we all first started, it wasn't easy for women. It was, there was a lot of drop-off. Women would come into it and then they would leave again. It was very male, very testosterone, very misogynist, a lot of those things. And I think again, because of my autism, I, I just either didn't notice or it wasn't presented to me in the same way. And so none of those things affected my mental health the way that they've probably affected other women who are either writers now or have left the industry completely, or, but many of them are no longer live stage performers. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. 
Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So what happens now, though, at your level and in 2023, when it does come to bookings, whether it is the Comedy Store or it's the Edinburgh Fringe or it's the Apollo or a TV show, is it a sort of tick box of have we got enough women? Have we got enough representation now? Or is it still very much white male, you know, once they've filled that quota and it is whoever's good enough for the job? It depends on the booker. It depends on the situation. I think, you know, the comedy store very conscientious about making sure that they have diverse bills that they that across genders, across, you know, race, across, you know, just representation in general. They're really, I think, leading the way in that regard on the circuit. Um, and then there are some bookers that, you know, if you are regional in the UK, then you don't necessarily have the luxury of choice. And you're going to have to book those that are able to get to your venues and able to play your gigs. So it, it's it's a real mixed bag. And then at the other end of the scale, yes, you have clubs that actively book, I suppose, the exact in the exact opposite way. And they claim that that's because that's what they prefer. That's what they say their audiences prefer. And then you get into the whole debate as to whether a comedy club should only give the audience what the audience tells them they want or whether there's some sort of responsibility upon the club to actually educate their audiences as to the wide variety of comedy that is that is out there. There is the conversation we can have really quickly about the art versus the business. So you've got into comedy to make people happy. People who go to a comedy place is because they want to have that laugh. However, it is a business. You have got to make money as a person who needs to live in the world. The store needs to make their money as well. Where do you sit on it, though? Are you sometimes like, well, I can do this gig, but I want to be paid X amount. I'm not going to do it for XX amount. Or are you like, well, this is a chance for me to do comedy and to make people laugh and I will take whatever I can get paid. First of all, on the comedy circuit, the prices are set. So if, you know, the comedy store says these are the prices for the different roles in the show and they are what they are. And then they will offer out to those actors 
products that they feel meet the quality standard that they that they put out. And that's how they maintain their business is they go, we will put out a quality show and we will also make sure that it is diverse and, and representative so that that as wide an audience as possible is, is happy to come and, and see it and feel heard, feel represented. Um, and, and that's how they sell their business. Other businesses might say, look, we're going to only book TV headliners. And at that point, that's up to them to negotiate with each individual headliner, how much they can afford to have that headliner do their, do their gig. And then there's a money negotiation. But generally speaking at comedy clubs, the prices are set and it is for you, the artist to prove that you are capable or worth the fee that they are willing to pay for that slot. And that's where you get things like open spots. An open spot is where a newer comic or a visiting comic might come in and say, look, I will give you a shorter set for less money or for free to prove to you that I can play your room and that I am worth paying more. And that's their like their audition for it. The way that it works is, is you start off, you know, your basic set is five minutes. So you want five minutes of jokes and you can go around what we call the open mic circuit, which is generally free to attend, free to play. There's some other show formats which have kind of trickled over from the U.S. like pay to play and bucket shows. Generally speaking, on the open mic circuit, you are an amateur who is willing to get up on stage for free in order to practice your craft in front of an audience that have paid little to nothing to be guinea pigged upon. And then as you work your way through that, once you have your five minutes set, once you're like, okay, I think I've got five solid minutes of jokes, you can then approach some of the professional clubs and say, can I do my five minutes on your stage to prove that I can play to your room? And then you would start doing that. And there's a five minute spot. There's a 10 minute spot. Some people do 15s, but usually it often jumps from 10 minutes to 20. 20 minute sets are the staple of the British comedy circuit. 20 minutes is what most professional comedians are going to be doing to get paid to, to pay their bills and pay their rent. Headliners in, in clubs, more colloquially outside of city centers. So you might have a comedy club out in the country where they go, look, we're going to pay a little bit more for a bigger headliner. And then we will ask them to do a longer set, 30 minutes or 40 minutes. And then with the rest of our small budget, we'll pay newer comics at the bottom to kind of be the warm up acts. And, but the main event is this headliner. And when you start selling tickets off the back of somebody's name, that's when that person can then come in and say, okay, if you're using my name to sell tickets, then this is what percentage of the sale I would like to have as is in remuneration. But when you're going to a comedy club in the middle of the city, you're actually buying into the brand of that comedy club, not into individuals on, on the bill, even though you might go on a particular day because you like a particular comic that you've seen listed. But really what you're doing is you're trusting the brand. You're saying, okay, I'm going to go to this comedy club because I trust them to curate a show for me of a particular level that I will enjoy that is worth the ticket price that I'm paying. And that's where there's a, you know, there's, you know, this is where you've got your, your buyer and your seller. You've got a whole bunch of comics and they're all trying to sell themselves to the promoters to get on the list so that the promoter goes, okay, this weekend I'm going to have A, B, C, and D gigging. And next weekend I'm going to have G, F, H, and I gigging. And they book throughout the year. So that's, that's kind of how it works as a marketplace. So then take that to the next level. You're going on your reawakening mm -hmm. tour. Where do you get when do you I am? Get to that level of going? I've got my five minute set. Now I've got my 20 minute set. Now I can do a mm -hmm. full on tour. Well, you've got your little Edinburgh Fringe Festival in the middle of that. There's a lot of comedy festivals that have popped up, not just Edinburgh. You've got Leicester, you've got Brighton, you've got a lot of little local ones uh, that, that are popping up. Uh, 
and and allowing comics the opportunity to do half an hour, an hour long shows. And this is where you get your your Edinburgh Fringe format, which is slightly different to a tour show, but that is where they go, right, um, this has happened to me and I want to explore it over the hour. I want to talk about something meaningful, but with, with humor to it. So we're going to discuss something of meaning, but with humor. And that's when you start getting your Edinburgh tour shows. That's another place where comics are going to be practicing their fare. And then off the back of that, you can try and tour it. Now, famously, it is sort of renowned that you'll lose money on your first tour. You'll lose money on your first tour because if you're touring before you're super, super famous or super high profiled, you're just going to hope that people will take a chance on you and buy some tickets and like what you do. And if in the first time you go to somewhere, 30 people buy tickets, if you do a good job, the next year, they're going to remember that you came and those 30 people might go, oh, we saw them last year. They were really good. Hey, you should come with me. And the following year, you sell 60 tickets. Word of mouth. And that's that's how the touring works. Otherwise, as, as you've already discussed, people are getting hugely famous on TikTok and Instagram with reels and everything. So they're able to just go straight to theaters and go, I'd like to book in. I want to do a live show. And then they just tell their followers and it sells out just through that. They don't even need to go through print marketing or television marketing. They've got their own, you know, ecosystem set up just from their own following. It's so fascinating. Thank you, Ria. Seriously, thank you for this education. Not a lot of people would want to talk about the intricacies. And I just think you're so amazing to be able to talk about that. And in such an elegant way that someone can actually understand that journey, because it's a massive journey. I think it's something that people take for granted a lot of time is that you don't just wake up and go, I want to be a comedian. You have to nurture that over years and years. And it's not just your act, but also Mm. the business side of it as well. And knowing the right people and and having that trust format to it. So talk to me about your reawakening tour. What can we expect on that this time around? Reawakening is is about me coming out of the pandemic and making some major life changes. uh, And just looking at how, you know, what that means for me as a a woman in the world today and how things are now. So that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about... um, Divorce. I'm talking about coming out and dating again in the real world, being what it's like, you know, what motherhood is and and all of these expectations that were put upon us as women and, and how that translates to work. Because I think the pandemic was a real line in the sand, especially for women. We had, you know, we had the Me Too movement just before the pandemic. It sort of started in 2017. Then we had the pandemic and the pandemic just sort of everybody stopped and everybody had time to think. And then we came out of it the other end and went right. This is what we're going to be doing. And and I think we've all felt that. I think we've all felt how people have come out in various ways, gung-ho one way or another, whether it is in activism, whether it is in, you know, we must do something about climate change, whether it's in personal change or whether they've come out and they're just gung-ho about, you know what, I survived that. Everyone who's here now survived that pandemic. And I think that's a huge thing to remember because there are so many people that didn't. And it is that you know, that fire of survival inside of us that is making us make decisions in various directions, whether it is for ourselves or in memory of those that we lost. You can see Ria on her reawakening tour all around the UK. For more information, go to rialina.com. Now, if you enjoy seeing your favourite comedians a bit more vulnerable, then come to Security and Secure. In the library, there's comedians, including Dave Chawner as well, who's opened up about his mental health journey. So on YouTube, we are now there on Security and Secure podcast. Go and check them out. All the videos of past interviews from Security and Secure. And keep liking, sharing and reviewing and keep spreading the word it's okay to not be okay on tiktok i'm at johnny seafoot 92 on instagram at johnny seafoot and on twitter at johnny seafoot ria where are you on socials ria lena just search ria lena i'm on instagram i'm on x x 
TikTok, Facebook. Oh, amazing. Well, go and check her out. Go and check me out. And let's keep spreading the word. It's okay to not be okay. I'm Johnny Seaford on Skinny and Skip Podcast. Until next time, thank you and goodbye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health-monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.